0: If you have your Bibles, you can open to Galatians chapter 5. We'll read Galatians chapter 5, the first verse. This will be something of a thematic verse for us tonight as we consider the chapter of the Confession, chapter 21. Before we go to that, let's read Galatians 5, verse 1. First verse, Galatians 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. So what what comes to your mind when you think about Christian freedom or Christian liberty? Think about that for a second. What comes to your mind when you think about Christian freedom or Christian liberty? I know that if you would have asked me that prior to thinking about this chapter of the Confession and preparing the talk for tonight, I would have thought about those issues or matters in the Christian life that offer a range of differences of opinion on whether or not they're right or wrong. So I would have thought, if you would have said, what is Christian freedom? What does Christian liberty have to do with, essentially? I would have said something along the lines of, it has to do with that which a Christian is free to do according to his conscience. So things like is it right or is it wrong to drink alcohol as a believer? Is it right or is it wrong to educate your children in this way or in that way? Is it right or is it wrong to sing certain hymns or songs in a church service, certain styles of music? Uh, is it right or is it wrong to use certain kinds of childbirth control? Child, uh, birth control? Those, those types of issues, matters of, well, Here are some Christians who say they think it's right. Here are others who say they think it's wrong. This is a matter of Christian liberty, Christian conscience. Is that that what you would have thought of when you think of Christian freedom or Christian liberty? I think for a lot of us it is. And so I think it's also interesting that when we come to the confession this evening and we read through it, the emphasis isn't, first of all, on those kinds of things. As we'll see, we'll get into those kinds of things when it comes to the conscience of the Christian But primarily and most foundationally, most fundamentally, Christian liberty has absolutely nothing to do with what you can or can't do. Christian liberty doesn't have anything to do with what you do or don't do. It doesn't have anything to do with what's allowed or not allowed in the Christian life. Foundationally, at its most basic level, Christian liberty has nothing to do with what you do, actually. Foundationally, Christian liberty has everything to do with what Christ has done. And so Christian liberty is not something you accomplish for yourself, it's not something that you practice. Christian liberty is at its most basic level what Jesus has done for you and what is now true of you because of your union with Christ. That's where the confession begins in its discussion of Christian liberty. It will only, after discussing that, will it then move into matters of conscience. But at the most foundational level, we have to start with what is Christian liberty it is your freedom in Christ because you're united to Him. That's what Christian liberty is. It's your freedom in Christ because you're united to Him. So, if you have uh, the bulletin for tonight, the chapter is printed on the inside there. The first uh, section, number one, is divided into two paragraphs, and I'll actually break that up into two separate sections for the sake of uh, working through it tonight. And for now, we'll just look at that first paragraph of the first section. I'll read that, and again, this is dealing with what is objectively, foundationally true of every single Christian believer. So the first paragraph, chapter 21, The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, and the rigor or severity and curse of the law. It also includes their deliverance from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil harm, uh, the evil or the harm of afflictions, from the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. This liberty also includes their free access to God and their giving obedience to God, rising not out of slavish fear, but from a childlike love and a willing mind. So we're dealing with Christian liberty. What is it to be set free in Christ? Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. So then the question is, well, what is freedom in Christ? What does that look like? How do we put, uh, how, do, how do we characterize it? How can we describe the freedom that's been given to us in Christ? And following biblical argument, the confession points out that there is freedom from certain things and there is freedom for certain things. Our liberty in Christ involves negatively things that we've been set free from, positively things that we've been set free for. And it's freedom that has been purchased by Christ. So if you look at the outline there, the first letter, our freedom is purchased by Christ. It says in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. So Let me ask an obvious question. Why did Christ set you free? According to Galatians chapter 5, chapter 1. For freedom. For freedom, right? So is it safe to say then that Christ set you free because he wants you to live in freedom? Yes, right? Yes. Christ set you free because he wants you to walk in freedom. That is the aim of his redemption of you. That you would be set free that you would enjoy the fullness of that freedom day in and day out of your life. And so what that means then is that Christian freedom or Christian liberty is not just some additional aspect of Christian living or some addendum, some appendix that's added on to Christian living. Christian liberty is at the very heart of what it is to live a healthy Christian life. It's actually at the very heart of what it is to live a Christian life. There is no Christian life the most foundational level, apart from the essential aspect of freedom in Christ. They're united. This idea of living for Christ is inherently united to the idea of being free in Christ. And so Christ died for you. He determined in eternity to die for you in order that you would be free and in order that you would walk in that freedom. That's what it is to walk as a Christian. And that looks like walking in the certainty of what that freedom is. And as you'll see there on the outline, there are nine things that Christ has set you free from, at least as it's summarized here in the confession, I think uh, it's a good summary of it. Nine things that you've been set free from, two things that you've been set free for. You've been set free from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law. Those three are kind of a unit. They're, They're all dealing with the penalty of our guilt or our sin. You've been set free from the guilt of sin. So way back in the confession, as we worked through the chapter of uh, the fall of of man, we talked about how we we are all naturally united to Adam. So when Adam sinned, what happened to all of us? We sinned with him, right? When Adam was declared guilty by God, what was true of all of us? We were declared guilty by God. And so not only are we guilty because of our union with Adam, but then we're guilty because of our own sin. No one seeks God. No one does good. No one is righteous. No, not even one. And so we're guilty. But in this, and there's a passage in Romans 5 where it talks about our union with Adam in his guilt, but the point of Paul arguing for our, that we were united with Adam in our guilt is to show that in the same way we were united to Adam in his guilt, We're now united to Christ in his righteousness. And so when Christ sets us free, he unites us to himself. In a sense, he rips us away from our union with Adam and his guilt and our guilt in him, and he unites us to himself so that there's no longer guilt. He removes the guilt entirely from the picture, and we're set free from the guilt of our sin. And then as a consequence of our guilt, we were condemned under the wrath of God. Romans 8.1, there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. He has set us free completely from the condemnation of the wrath of God because he bore it in our place. Christ has set us free from the condemning wrath of God. And then thirdly, the rigor and curse of the law. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Many of you, most of you, like good Christians. And how many of you remember Faithful when he went up the hill of difficulty and encountered Moses? Does anyone remember that part? You didn't read it very well. When Moses climbed the hill of difficulty, not Moses. Well, Moses did climb the hill of difficulty, but it was because he was pursuing Faithful who was climbing the hill of difficulty. And Faithful is recounting this to Christian later on in the story. But he's telling Christian, I was going up the hill of difficulty. And on my way up the hill of difficulty, I looked behind me, and I saw a man chasing me. And the man was Moses. And when the man caught up to me, he pummeled me, and he knocked me to the ground. And I think, like most of us would, we looked up. he looked up, and he said, why'd you do that? And Moses says, because of the sinful inclination of your heart. And when Faithful tried to get up, Moses beat him down again. And he fell on the ground. And, and Faithful asked Moses, he said, please show me mercy. Why won't you have mercy? And Moses said, there's no mercy to be found in me. And then he pummeled him again as Faithful tried to get up. And Faithful says, I would have been left there dead. But there came a man who bid him to leave. And this man, he said, I didn't know who he was at first. But, but then I, I noticed his, his hands, they had scars. And then I realized it was the Lord Jesus. It was the one who died for me. And he bids the curse of the law to leave. He removes it completely. The law, when we come to the law for justification, it is a ruthless, rigorous master, and it will beat us down again and again and again because we can't keep it, and we fail. And every time we fail, the rigor and the curse of the law reminds us you deserve death and you deserve punishment, and there's no escaping it. As long as we're coming to the law for justification, there's no escaping the rigor and the curse of the law. But Jesus became a curse for us. The scars on his hands demonstrate that he has removed the curse forever. And he bids Moses, in a sense, in terms of his judgment, to move along, no longer to beat us and punish us. Of course, the law is a good thing. And we saw that two week, three weeks ago when we looked at the chapter on the law of God. It's a good thing. What makes the law so pummeling to us is our inability to keep it when it comes to our attempts to justify ourselves. It's good And we obey it because we love God, but we don't obey it to be justified before God. And when we do that, we get pummeled by it. But the point is, Jesus has removed the curse of the law and the rigor so that we're no longer beaten day after day by the demands of it. We're set free, then, from the guilt of sin, condemning wrath, and the rigor and curse of the law. And then we're also set free, the next three go together, in terms of the power of sin. So we're free from the the present evil world, Galatians 1.4 says that Jesus has rescued us from this present evil age. We're also free from the bondage to Satan, and we're free from the dominion of sin. So we're free from this present evil age or this present evil world in the sense that we're, we're no longer bound to go along with the course of the world, the world there representing all that's hostile to God. We are no longer bound to follow the sinful course of this world, to love the sinful things that this world loves, to pursue the sinful things that this world pursues, uh, to have the sinful mindset that this world has. We, we've been set free from that. He has rescued us from the course of this world, from the power of this world, to live as citizens of heaven. We've been set free from, our, uh, from this present evil age. And then We've been set free from the bondage to Satan. And so Satan was our former master. He is called in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, in the sense that he's the one who directly influences and directs the course of this sinful world under the authority of God. But Acts 26, verse 18, if you want to turn there, you can. I think it's a, it's a helpful passage in seeing the freedom that we've been given from Satan's dominion. Acts 26, verse 18, Paul's describing the commission that he was given from Christ to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says that his mission, in verse 18, was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Every time someone is rescued out of their sin, they are rescued out of the dominion, the kingdom, the rule, the reign of Satan over their lives. Uh, Colossians 1, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, So he has set us free from the power, dominion, the rule, the reign of Satan over our lives. And then he set us free from the dominion of sin. We're no longer bound by sin. Sin is no longer master over you, according to Romans chapter 6. You no longer have to sin. Uh, if you, this, I don't remember how many weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, we saw these different stages of humanity. Uh, previously in our sin, we were not able not to sin. We were not able not to sin. We were bound by sin. We loved our sin. We were incapable of exiting our sin. But in Christ, we're now able not to sin. He set us free so that we're able not to sin. And one day we will not be able to sin in the age to come. We'll be able not to sin. Uh, We will not be able to sin. And so he's rescued us then from all of the elements of the power of sin, from the world, from Satan, from sin itself. He has set us free from all of the bondage of the power of sin. And he's also set us free from all of the evil effects of sin. And those are the last three. He set us free from all the evil effects of sin. First, no, or letter number seven, he set us free from the evil of afflictions. So the evil of afflictions have to do with the hopelessness, the misery of our afflictions. For the non-believer, for someone who is not in Christ, and they are in the midst of afflictions. There may be a glimmer of hope that they'll exit those afflictions in this life, but there's no ultimate hope. And there's, there's no ultimate hope that their afflictions have any meaning or any purpose. Uh, for the non-believer, the experience of afflictions is simply the experience of the, of the punishment of God upon this world for sin. Not necessarily for their specific sin in that instance, but it is the effect of God's general punishment upon the world for sin. That's all that affliction is for the non-believer, but for the believer, afflictions are never viewed from that perspective. They are never the punishment of God upon you, personally, specifically. They are always His loving. Uh, they, they are always according to His loving and good and wise plans for you. And so, even in the midst of afflictions, the evil has been stripped away the hopelessness, the misery, the despair, the meaninglessness of afflictions has been taken away. And it's because we know God has not caused this to happen to me for my harm, but for my good. And so we we know that afflictions are good for us in the moment. In the immediate context, uh, David in Psalm 119, he says, "'It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes.'" The believer can say, it's actually good that I'm afflicted. It's it's not painless, it's not pleasant, but it is good that I might learn to cling more closely to God's statutes, to his word, to his truth. It's good in the immediate context, but it's also good for eternity. We heard Pastor Alpheus Atkins a number of weeks ago preach from 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. There is eternal glory that will come when our afflictions are over. So, so we are in the midst of afflictions now, but we know these afflictions are actually preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses anything, any pain we might feel in this life. And so the evil of afflictions has been removed in Christ. He has set us free from the evil, the, the misery, the hopelessness of trials. Not only the evil of afflictions, but also the fear and the sting of death. Um, So, prior to Christ, Hebrews 2 tells us we were held in slavery all the days of our lives to the fear of death. But in Christ, that slavery has been removed, we're no longer bound by slavery to the fear of death because we have nothing to fear in death. We know where death leads us. We know what's on the other side of death. We might fear the event of death. We might fear the pain of death. Uh, It's certainly not a pleasant experience, but... It's not a hopeless experience, and so no, we're not bound by this slavish fear of death. Uh, there's a hymn, the, the hymn, It Is Not Death to Die. It goes, It is not death to die, to leave this weary road, and mid the brotherhood on high, to be at home with God. For the believer, it's not death to die. It's, uh, it's the gateway into eternal life, into the eternal enjoyment of God. And then lastly, it has liberty in Christ means that we've been freed from eternal damnation. So the believer will never experience the misery of being separated from Christ and from his goodness throughout all eternity. That's the destiny of the unbeliever is to be separated from the goodness, the love, the glory of Christ in hell. The destiny of the believer is to be with Christ for all eternity. He has freed us from eternal damnation. So those are all the things he's freed us from, at least as they're listed here. But he's also freed us for other things. Uh, on the outline it says two. that works as well. It's liberty to certain things or for certain things. Free access to God, first of all. So Ephesians 2.18 tells us that uh, Christ came preaching peace and he has, he's now given us access to God, to one Father by the Spirit. And then 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that the just died for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So the aim of Christ's redemption was to bring us close to God, that we might walk in close fellowship with our Father. And secondly, that we might live in loving obedience to him. The aim of our freedom is ultimately devotion to Christ, and we'll hopefully consider that a little bit more as we work through the paragraphs here. But he has freed us not to live as slaves in fear of a mean judge, but as children who love our Father and delight and obedience to him. So those are the elements or the aspects of the freedom of Christ, the things he's freed us from, the things he's freed us to. Now, think for just a second as you look over that list. Isn't it true that these are the kinds of things that are constantly being attacked by Satan in the Christian life? So much of our um, inefficiency and effectiveness as believers, is owed to the fact that we struggle in the assurance of these things. And Satan knows that. Again, we, uh, back in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, when we were there on a Wednesday evening uh, sometime earlier this year, I mentioned a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Some of you may remember that book. It's a really good book. Uh, and, and in that, it talks about the specific ways that Satan attempts to destroy the believer— And one of the ways that Satan attempts to destroy the believer and to make us useless in the Christian life is by stripping us of the confidence and the certainty that we have in these things. And so Satan would love us to believe, love for us to believe that the guilt of sin is not fully removed, that we still are in some way guilty before God. And we could go through this list and and piece by piece look at how Satan would, would love to strip us of the confidence that we have and we could see the effect that that would have on us. If, if he could cause us to believe that we're not really freed from the bondage of sin, that we're not really freed from God's wrath, that we're not really freed from the fear and the sting of death so that we're, we're unwilling to live our lives wholeheartedly for Christ uh, because we, we fear what might happen as a result. If Satan could, could convince us that these things aren't true, he'd make us very useless. And so the aim of the Christian then is to be convinced day in and day out that everything listed here that comes straight from God's word is true with regard to the liberty that Christ has accomplished for you. That would be a very worthwhile aim day in and day out would be to refresh your mind and your heart in the certainty that these things are true of every Christian unchangeably because of our union with Christ. So that's foundationally what Christian liberty is, the things we're set free from, the things we're set free to. Then the confession addresses another question that might come up, or addresses a question that might come up in thinking about that. What about believers in the Old Testament? Did they have this kind of liberty? And this is a question that's come up again and again as we've studied through this confession. What about Old Testament Christians? Did they have justification? Did they have faith in Christ? Did they, and, and here the question is, did they have the same liberty that we have as believers? Prior to the coming of Christ. And the answer is yes and no. In some ways, Old Testament believers did have the liberties that we have, and in other ways, they didn't. They, they had the substance or the essence of the liberties that we have. So uh, there's a few things listed there, but we can think back to the Old Testament and think of, of occasions where we clearly see that there were certain elements of these liberties that are expressed in the life of Old Testament saints. Think about David in Psalm 32, 1-2, uh, where he, it's quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4. I don't have it right in front of me, but it's along the lines of how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose iniquities have been covered, or something along those lines. How blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and iniquities are covered. How blessed is he whose sin the Lord will not take into account From an Old Testament saint, he's saying how blessed it is to be forgiven of God. David could say that. He knew something of the liberty of being freed from the guilt of sin. And then there's an element of understanding of justification by faith in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and what happened? It was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. He believed God, and it was was counted to him as righteousness. So there's justification in the Old Testament. And then there's delight in obedience in the Old Testament. I mean, we just have to read Psalm 119, as we've done on Sunday mornings, to see there is a wholehearted delight in God's law. That's not just for New Testament Christians. That's Old Testament believers had the ability, by God's grace, to delight in his law. They, They knew the liberty of being set free from the bondage of this world, to be able to delight in God's law. There was an element of the enjoyment of the Holy Spirit. That's not here on the outline. It probably should be. David in Psalm 51 says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So there, there, was, there was enjoyment of the Spirit in the Old Testament in some form or fashion. But, so, so the point being, Old Testament saints enjoyed the substance of liberty, the same liberty we have in Christ, but not to the same degree, the same measure. And that's the point confession makes in this paragraph, they didn't have it in the same measure. Uh, They were still under ceremonial law. We're not. We don't have to go to the temple and offer sacrifices year after year. We've been set free from those sorts of things. Not only that, but we have greater boldness to come to the throne of grace. They looked forward to a Savior they could only see in shadowy form, But we look back to a Savior that we see in crystal clarity in the Word, and we know He has gone before us into the Holy of Holies so that we have free and complete access to go to God with confidence. We have greater boldness than Old Testament saints. And we have a fuller experience of the Holy Spirit. What was the, I think John chapter 6, what does Jesus say is the purpose, the mission of the Holy Spirit when He would send Him into the world? Anyone know? He would testify about Christ, right? He would testify about Christ. Who would the Holy Spirit glorify? Would the Holy Spirit glorify himself? Is the Holy Spirit said to explicitly glorify the Father? No, the Holy Spirit is said to glorify the Son, Jesus So if the Holy Spirit's ministry is primarily that of glorifying the Son, where would you expect the greatest manifestation of the Holy Spirit's ministry to take effect? Before Christ or after Christ? Before the revelation of the Son or after the revelation of the Son? Certainly it would be after the revelation of the Son. Jesus ascended on high, and then he sent his Holy Spirit into the world for the first time. Not, that the fir- not the first time the Holy Spirit had been in the world, of course, but now the Holy Spirit is coming into the world for the first time as witness to the Christ who has come and died and ascended and reigns and will return. Never again, never before, had the Holy Spirit borne that kind of witness to Christ because no one had seen him. But now that Christ had come, the Holy Spirit comes, and he bears crystal clear witness to the risen and reigning Savior. And so we enjoy the the ministry of the Spirit to a far greater degree than Old Testament saints. The assurance that he gives us, the hope that he gives us, the confidence to call God our Father, all of those things are incomparably greater than what Old Testament Christians could do. It's something we should be thankful for, that we live this side of the cross. All right, well, the, the next paragraph, I skipped to the second paragraph, but jumping down into section two, of the confession, this is now dealing with the outworking of our freedom. So we've worked, we've looked at the foundation of our freedom in Christ, but that freedom then is worked out in the way that we live our lives. And so paragraph two starts to deal with how is freedom worked out in your life? How, how do you apply your Christian freedom from day to day? And it first talks about the liberty of conscience. Uh, so liberty of conscience is that second paragraph there, And I'll go ahead and read this, and then we'll work through it. God alone is Lord of the conscience. He has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. Therefore, to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. Also, requiring implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy not only liberty of conscience, but also reason. And so the, the point here, as it's uh, pointed out there in the letters A and, and B, our conscience is bound by God's Word alone, and our conscience is free from the mere doctrines of man, or the commands of man. Um, the, when the Bible speaks about conscience, it speaks about conscience in a number of places. So Romans chapter 2 talks about conscience as that which either condemns us or excuses us. The conscience says you're either in the right or you're in the wrong, according to Romans chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, we read that we can have a seared conscience, a conscience that no longer functions the way that it should because it's been hardened. Uh, Kevin, Kevin DeYoung, he describes the conscience as the moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad. Basically, it's the moral compass in your mind that tells you, yes, this is a good thing and morally right before God, no, this is a bad thing and morally corrupt in the sight of God. Yes, this is obedience to God. No, this is sin. That's what the conscience does. It's, it's a guiding principle for us as we go about our day. And so it's a very powerful tool if you think about it. What could be more powerful in your life from day to day than a never-ceasing voice in your head that says, this is right or this is wrong? And it's powerful. It's a powerful tool to direct the course of your life. Your decisions will be largely based on the noises that your conscience is making as you go about your day. But the problem is our conscience is not infallible. It's not without error. Our conscience can often be misguided and can be wrong. Sometimes I can hear in my conscience, this is right, but really, God's Word would say, no, this is wrong. Or sometimes in my conscience, I can be wrongly led to think this is wrong, this is sinful, but really, according to God's Word, it's not sinful. There's nothing wrong with it. And so our conscience can be wrong. It can be wrongly guided. So the question is, how do we know for sure that our conscience is being rightly guided? How do we know that it's fine-tuned the way that it should be, that it doesn't need adjusting? And the point of the confession is to simply say our conscience is to be tuned to nothing other than the Word of God. Our conscience cannot be bound by anything other than God's authority, God's word, God's truth, God's requirements. Nobody can come to you and say, this is sin. You are in sin for doing this if God has not clearly revealed that that's the case. No one can, can come and say to you, you must worship God in this way if God has not said you must worship him in this way. That's, that's the point of the confession. And we can see why uh, if you think about the context from which the confession was written there's Roman Catholicism, all sorts of traditions that were binding on uh, its adherents, and, uh, and really no support from the Scriptures. Basically, what the church said, what the Pope said, or um, what the papacy said, that was the authority of God. It didn't need any, uh, any evidence from the Word of God, any support from the Word of God. The Word of the Church was the Word of God. And the writers of the Confession are saying, no, that's not the case. Only the Word of God is the Word of God, and only the Word of God can bind your conscience. So a good example of that in the New Testament is the Bereans, right? Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 17. When they hear the word, they diligently searched the scriptures to make sure that the things they were hearing from the messengers of God were really found in God's word. They were diligent to search the scriptures and make sure this is not just the word of the commands of man. These really are the words of God, and we should be like that. We should make sure that what I in my conscience am bound by What I think I am offering to God as obedience, or what I think uh, would be sin for me to commit, I should make sure that that sense of conscience is guided by the Word of God, and not just by my opinions, or the opinions of others, or anything else. Stu Johnston is a pastor who summarizes this point well. Uh, This is a little bit longer quote, but I think it's helpful, so I'll read it all. He says, Many Christians, including pastors, have strong opinions about various matters that the Bible does not explicitly address. Birth control, the feeding of infants on demand or on a fixed schedule, the raising of children, the education of children, dating or courtship, and the type of music that should be used in worship are just a few of the issues about which many believers have very strong ideas and even convictions. It is crucial that we distinguish what God himself has authoritatively stated in Scripture and a fallible sinner's opinion. We must maintain a very clear and emphatic distinction between thus says the Lord and, in my opinion, I think that. Christ has purchased for each and every one of his people the liberty to live unto God with the conviction that he alone is the Lord of the conscience. So the point being, there is a distinction between God has said this and you must do it or you must not do it and, you know, I really think it's wisest that you do this. I really think it's best that you do this. Those are two very different things. And we, and we shouldn't get them confused. All right, well, maybe, I'll make a couple qualifications before we move on to the next section because there are some, maybe some necessary qualifications to make. First of all, what is being said here, what I'm saying is not that we should never follow the counsel of others, even when they can't necessarily say, hey, here's a verse to support what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, it may be that I have a lot of respect for a particular individual and for the general wisdom that God has given him or her. And when that individual comes to me and, and says, you know, Luke, I really think that it's not wise for you to make that decision. I, I think it's going to have negative effects on your family. And I say, well, show me the verse that says that that's wrong. And he says, well, you know, I can show you principles that, that I think would, would show you that it's unwise. I, I don't have anything that would say it's, it's wrong, necessarily, but, but it doesn't seem wise to me. What the confession is not saying is that it would be a good decision at that point to say, you have no authority over me. You can't bind my conscience. I'm going to do whatever I want. As believers, and, and scriptural principle would lead us to believe, we should generally put a lot of weight on the counsel of wise and godly believers even when they can't necessarily say this is absolutely morally right or wrong. We should be uh, quick to want to lean on the wisdom of those around us and uh, generally to trust their insight, even uh, in matters of indifference. Uh, Also, freedom of conscience here doesn't mean a lack of consideration for the conscience of others. So we could go to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, or we could go to Romans 14 to show that believers in the exercise of their own conscience— should be very mindful of the conscience of other believers. If I have freedom as a believer to do something, but I know that in doing this thing, that's not sin in itself, I will in some way negatively affect the confidence of my brother or sister in Christ, then I have to question, is it wise and loving for me to do it? And so we're free, we're not bound in our conscience. It's not as though I'm thinking if I do this, uh, it's, it's morally wrong because that believer thinks it is. I'm not bound in that sense. But out of love for that believer, I might say, even though I'm not bound, I'm going to abstain because I want to bless my brother and help my brother and not be a stumbling block to him. All right, well, the final paragraph deals with liberty abused. We have liberty in Christ, that liberty means that we should walk according to our conscience as it's bound by God's word, but that liberty does not mean we're free to do whatever we want. That's the point here uh, there are a number of passages we could go to for that. Galatians 5, 13 reminds us that we have been set free, but we should not use our freedom as, a, uh, as an instrument of the flesh. 1 uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 16, similar, similarly, it says that we've been set free, but we should not use our, fr- our freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves to God. And that really gets to the heart of what freedom is. Our freedom is not the freedom to sin. Our freedom is to be wholeheartedly devoted as slaves to God. Freedom from sin means that we're now free to be enslaved to God, which is a good thing. There's nothing better than that. We, we maybe, I shouldn't say we, but there is the danger, at least, of thinking of freedom as the opportunity every believer has to walk as much like the world as they can without going over, to, over the edge into sin. Uh, My freedom means that I don't have to be bound by all of these rules over here, uh, you know, in terms of uh, what other believers think and and what other people say I should or shouldn't do. Instead, I can push the limits and be as worldly as I possibly can without actually going over the edge into into utter worldliness. But freedom is not the freedom to live as much like the world as we can or as closely to sin as we can without actually giving in. Freedom is freedom to live as pure and devotedly as we can. Christ and obedience to him. That's the aim of our obedience. We know what's pleasing to God because he's revealed it to us in the scriptures. We can be certain that what we're doing is either pleasing to God or displeasing to God. Uh, We don't have to question whether or not uh, our life in certain aspects is right or wrong. He's clearly told us in his word what obedience to him looks like, and we have freedom to wholeheartedly pursue that. That's why we've been set free, is that we might pursue conformity to his will with our whole being. i well, will finish with the words from Galatians 5.1. Again, I think they're the most important words that we could remind ourselves of from day to day as we uh, consider what it is to be free in Christ and what that means for us as we go about our day-to-day lives. He has set us free, and we should live in that freedom. Galatians 5.1, therefore be imit nope, that's Ephesians 5.1. Galatians 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So, again, it might be worth on your own uh, even just taking this list and the passages that are with it before the Lord in prayer and reading them and thanking Him, giving praise to God that this is the kind of freedom that He has purchased for you through the blood of His Son. Let's pray our father we do thank you that though we were enslaved to sin and to satan and to the principles of this world though we were enslaved to the fear of death that we were enslaved to the guilt and condemnation of our sin we thank you that you have once and for all and fully set us free from that bondage and you have set us free that we might live wholeheartedly as your bond slaves God, we pray that you would give us grace, first of all, to believe these things. We pray that you would help us to have confidence in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Help us to see the fullness of the freedom that's ours because of him. And we pray that you would help us to apply it uh, from day to day as living servants and obedient slaves to you where true joy and and true life is found. We pray that you would help us not to believe the, the lies of this world that tell us that joy is found in freedom from you. But help us to believe the truth of your word, that freedom is found in obedience to you. Help us to live according to your your truth and your word and your commands. We thank you for Christ, and we thank you for the grace that is ours through him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.